0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from, I Could Never Believe in a God Who, our series in which we examine and respond to serious objections to Christianity. Here's Pastor Nick.
1: So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19, and I'll begin today by reading our text, which comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we ask that this morning as we study it, as we consider it, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, that you would apply these things to our lives. And Lord, that we would be transformed in our thinking, in our hearts, Lord, in every part of us. Lord, change us and make us into the kind of people that you desire us to be. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would equip us, that you would speak to us through your word. We come with hearts that desire to hear from you and hearts that desire to grow and learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. For the past eight weeks, we've been in a series that we're wrapping up or concluding today. It was originally a seven-week series that we extended by two weeks because we got so much feedback from so many people that this has been a helpful series. And what we've been doing in this series called I Could Never Believe in a God Who is that each week we've been taking a topic and we've been taking an honest look at some of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity and the Bible. This all began a few months ago when we posted a poll online in which we asked people the question, how would you complete this sentence? I could never believe in a God who? How would you complete that sentence? And what we did is we took those responses and we looked at other research as well. And what we did is we identified some topics which people say are the biggest things they struggle with when it comes to embracing Christianity and believing in the Bible. And our goal through this series is really two things. One of them is that we want to remove some of those barriers and help people move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. But the other goal that we have with this series is also to equip you so that you will be equipped and ready with some tools and some, some thoughts and some ideas to be able to share these things with your family members and coworkers and friends, people you know, who are asking these same questions and grappling with these same issues themselves. So when it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the biggest struggles that people say they have is this. They say, I could never believe in a God who does not affirm some people's sexuality. Bertrand Russell, he was an atheist philosopher in the 20th century, and he said this. The worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. In our poll that we took, by the way, this was one of the the highest ranked responses that we got. Many people said uh, that accepting what the Bible has to say about sexuality is one of the greatest hurdles to embracing Christianity and believing in the Bible. I remember specifically a conversation that I had with one of the friends that I grew up with. We were in a Starbucks in Denver. I remember like it was yesterday. And uh, he had been to church with me many times, and he'd even prayed with me on some occasions. And I knew that he was open to the things of God, but that day he told me this. He said, I will never be a Christian because of what the Bible says about homosexuality. See, he had as an uncle who's gay. And you might ask the question, as many people do, why does God even care? Like, why does God care what other people do in the privacy of their own homes behind closed doors with their own bodies? Why can't Christians just mind their own business and let people do whatever they want to do? And, and really, this is a major issue in our culture today. And, and Christianity's teachings about sexuality are increasingly considered to be not just antiquated and prudish, but they're actually considered to be oppressive in in our society, in the cultural climate that we live in today. Because the way that many people think today is that morality is based on a few things. For example, uh, the way that we judge morality is no longer uh, inherited, right? We no longer get our morality from It's not just passed down to us and we accept what was given to us by our parents or by a religion. Nowadays, people run things through kind of a a couple questions. One of the questions they run things through is they ask, is it harmful or is it benign, right? And so the idea is that, hey, if something is not harmful, then it can't possibly be wrong. So when it comes to sexuality, the thinking is that as long as what you're doing doesn't hurt somebody else, then it can't possibly be wrong. When it comes to pornography, for example, many people would argue that it's fine because no one's getting hurt in the process. Now, of course, you could argue that, and I would. I I think it's not a victimless crime. But, But we could go on and we could say, when it comes to consenting adults doing whatever they want to do with their own bodies, many people would say, look, they're not hurting anybody, so there's nothing wrong with it. Just leave them alone and stop telling them what to do. Furthermore, in our culture, uh, anything or anyone who is deemed to be limiting freedom, so anyone who is perceived to be limiting freedom in any way, is, that is considered uh, oppressive and bad. In fact, you would go so far as to say that anytime somebody feels that their freedom is limited, they have an existential crisis, right? Because we believe that exercising our freedom is pretty much the most important thing about life. And so whereas in the past, sexual ethics, uh, Christian sexual ethics were considered prudish or moralistic, nowadays things have shifted to the point where many people in our society in our culture actually consider Christian sexual ethics to be immoral and wrong. They consider Christian sexual ethics not not to be moralistic and prudish, but to be actually immoral and wrong because they're considered not just uh, prudish, they're considered oppressive. Now, there are three predominant views on sexuality that are held by people in our society today. Let me just walk you through them. Number one, one common view about sexuality is that sexuality is an appetite, right? It's an appetite. So. Um, It's a natural appetite, kind of like when you get hungry, you eat whatever you can find to eat. When you get thirsty, you drink whatever you can find to drink. And we treat sexuality the same way. When we feel certain urges, we find whoever we want and we satisfy that physical need. After all, in the animal kingdom, there's no concept of marriage, right? Animals don't get married. There's no concept of fidelity or monogamy. There's just simply mating. And the thinking would say, hey, we're just big mammals, so sexuality has no moral value. It's neither good nor bad, right? It has no moral value. It's just like eating a sandwich when you're hungry. Interestingly, this view of sexuality is not new to our day and age. Many people in the ancient world at the time when the New Testament was written thought very much the same way about sexuality, and that's actually addressed in the Bible. Did you know that? Like, Paul the Apostle speaks to this view of sexuality as just an appetite in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he quotes a very popular saying that was going around at that time, and um, you have to read it in context to kind of understand what he's saying, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 13. Paul says this. He quotes, and he says, Oh, you know you guys say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Well, this saying isn't actually about food, and you realize that if you read the following verses. This saying was people's way of talking about sexuality as a physical appetite, and they would say, hey, look, when you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink, and when you have sexual desires, you just satisfy them, and that's all it is because sexuality is nothing more than an animal instinct, and you know, people have made too much out of it. They've tried to moralize it when, in fact, it's just a physical instinct like any other. And Paul refutes that idea. He says, no, that's not true. No, we don't believe that because we believe that you were made by God and you were made for God. And therefore, what you do with your body isn't just physical. Your sexuality is profoundly connected to your psychology and to your spirituality. You know, there's an article recently, a couple years back, in the New York Academy of Sciences, and it was called, Why Men Rape? Why men rape? And here's what this argued, that from a purely scientific perspective, rape is, and this is a quote, rape is an evolutionary adaptation for maximizing reproductive success similar to a leopard's spots and a giraffe's elongated neck. In other words, if we're just animals and sexuality is just an appetite and there's nothing moral about it, then rape is just a well, as he said, a evolutionary adaptation for maximizing reproductive success, similar to a leopard's spots and a giraffe's elongated neck. In other words, rape is then completely normal and natural. But of course, we don't believe that, right? I don't think anybody in the world believes that on a practical level. See, here's why. Because we all intuitively know that sexuality is more than just what we do with our bodies, right? It's more than just a physical appetite. It's more significant. It's more meaningful. There's more going on.
0: Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkatie.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support b Set Free Radio at bsetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message.
1: Now here's another view on sexuality that's very popular today, is that sexuality is everything, right? It's not an appetite, it's just everything. In other words, uh, it's the end-all, be-all of human existence. It is the reason you exist, it is the pinnacle of existence, it is the whole point of your life. And one of the ways you can see this, this attitude about sex is everything played out in our society today is the way that many people today identify themselves according to their sexual feelings. That's their primary identity. In other words, they say, look, this isn't just what I do or how I feel. This is who I am at the most fundamental level. See, they would say that their sexual desires define them and their sexual feelings are the single most important thing about them and who they are. In other words, they would say sexuality is everything. And in this perspective, sexuality is seen as basically the ultimate reason for being. It is the central component of your identity as a human being. In other words, nothing else matters more. And therefore, freely satisfying those desires and those appetites and those feelings in whatever way you feel inclined to do so is essential to your emotional health and your development and your well-being. In other words, to, to say that you shouldn't act on those feelings would be like telling a fish not to swim or it would be like telling a bird not to sing. It would be cruel and oppressive. Interestingly, again, this view of sexuality was also very prevalent in the time that the New Testament was written. And you know, there's a real way in which the time that we live in today with all the plurality and all of the thoughts about sexuality and things like that, we live in a time today, this cultural moment is most similar to that in which Christianity was born and spread in the first century. There's never been a time in history since the first century that was more similar then the Western culture today is to Roman culture at the time of Jesus and the time of the early church. And I just say that to say this, that I sometimes hear a lot of people, you know, they think the sky is falling and every, you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket and woe is me and all these things. And I say, no way. This cultural moment that we live in today is an amazing opportunity it's an amazing opportunity for us to bring the gospel into the world. You have to ask yourself this question. Are you called by God to live a life of comfort in which you're surrounded by people who think exactly like you do and, and you all just give each other a thumbs up and pat each other on the back because everybody in society thinks like you do? Or perhaps are you called by God on a mission? To bear witness to him in the world and carry out his mission. Guys, I believe it's the latter. But again, this view of sexuality, as sex is everything, was very prevalent at the time the New Testament was written. Let me just give you some examples. In the Roman Empire at this time, people regularly, I mean it was everybody, you know, engaged in premarital sex. It was common for married people to have lovers outside of their marriage and to have extramarital sex, you could call it. Prostitution was common and legal. Uh, Homosexuality was very popular and very accepted. Pedophilia was also legal and accepted and just commonplace in that society. And so understand this, the world that the Bible was originally written to was not more prudish than we are today. In fact, we are more prudish. Even the most radical people today on this topic are more prudish than people were at that time. In other words, our society, if anything, still hasn't yet reached the level of electric sexuality that existed at that time. And it's important to remember this, and I say that to say this, that Christian sexual ethics, biblical sexual ethics, have been countercultural since day one. Right? It's not that, not that the, the things that the Bible says about sexuality were just the common way that everybody thought back then, or the prevailing attitude that everybody had in those times. No. They were absolutely countercultural. They went absolutely against the grain. In fact, people in the first century were more accepting, more affirming of different kinds of sexuality than even the most radical people in our society today. Again, pedophilia, for example, was an accepted common practice where for us it's still considered a heinous act. And into that culture where sexuality was everything, Christianity came with a sexual ethic that was absolutely countercultural. And then I'll just say this. Here's the third view on sex that is very common today, and that's this, that sexuality is bad. Now, many people assume that this is the Christian view and the biblical teaching about sexuality, that it is bad, that it's taboo, that it's forbidden, that it's disgusting, that it's wrong. And truly, that is how some Christians teach and think about sexuality. In fact, the attitude that some churches have, I find it a little bit funny, right? It's a little bit strange. Think about it. It says, Hey, sex is vile and dirty and gross, Therefore, you should save it for your spouse, right? Make sure you save it for your spouse. Give them that dirty, vile thing because you love them, right? That's just a very strange, bizarre message if you think about it. And so what happens is, you know, kids grow up being told this throughout teenage years. Sex is dirty. Sex is bad. Avoid it. Don't think about it. And then one day you get married and you're supposed to do that with your spouse and you feel bad about it, right? Because it's so ingrained in your thinking that this is wrong and bad and something to be avoided, But in contrast to these common views about sexuality, Jesus gives us a better story. He gives us a better story. In this text we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, we can see three things that Jesus tells us about sexuality. First of all, as opposed to the idea that sexuality is bad, Jesus tells us that sexuality is good. As opposed to the idea that sexuality is just an appetite, Jesus tells us that sexuality has a purpose. And as opposed to the idea that sexuality is everything, Jesus says, no, sexuality is a shadow of better things. It's a shadow of better things. So let's take a closer look at this passage from Matthew chapter 19, and we'll see what Jesus has to say. But before we do that, let me remind you who this Jesus is who is saying these things to us. Who is this Jesus that we're talking about who says these things about sexuality this is the Jesus who is widely considered even by people who are not followers of his and not Christians. He's widely considered to be one of the greatest people who ever lived, a great teacher who taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to forgive those who sin against us. But this Jesus is even better than that. The Bible shows us that Jesus was more than just a good person who taught good things. No, the Bible says that this Jesus is our Savior. He is the one who laid down his life for us so we could be saved and forgiven, and redeemed, and we're told that that act is the ultimate expression of what love is. In fact, this Jesus was not only just a great human person. The Bible tells us that he was divine, And he proved that by rising from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. And what that means is that Jesus wasn't just an innocent victim who died to take our place to save us from a judgmental God. No, it means that Jesus is God, the God who created you, the God who came to you to save you because he loves you. Therefore, what this Jesus has to say about sexuality, keep this in mind. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. If that's even possible, he does. He he is more dedicated, more committed to your joy than you are committed to your own joy. And therefore, whatever he is going to say on the issue of sexuality, you can trust it because you can know that he absolutely has your best interest in mind because he has proved that once and for all on the cross. He has, you could say, he has earned the right to speak into our lives by proving that he is absolutely committed to us because he gave his life for you so with that in mind what does Jesus have to say about sexuality Well the first thing he says is that sexuality is good now this section begins with Jesus talking to a group of Pharisees who, who were always you know trying to ruin his reputation they felt threatened by him and so they would come up with these these they would try to get him to say things publicly that would cause people to not like him as much. And they found a topic today in this section about divorce. See, divorce was very popular in Jesus' time. Again, this is one of those things where we think, man, divorce is getting out of hand in our society today. If you, you don't even know, like, divorce in Jesus' time was off the hook, right? It was crazy. It was out of control. It was rampant, right? It makes us look like the most like prudish people in the world. Like we never get divorced compared to people at this time. See, in the law of Moses, the rule about divorce was that the only reason you could get a divorce was for what the Bible said was if your spouse was found to be unclean. Now, what that originally meant in its original context was if your spouse committed adultery against you, they cheated on you. But in Jesus's time, what a lot of people said, and this was a lot influenced by Greek culture, right, which was all about, hey, divorce, whatever, you know, marriage, remarriage, doesn't matter. People were doing it all the time. And so the Jews had to grapple with the fact, well, they have the law of Moses. But the way they went about it so that they could kind of justify getting divorced all the time was that they said, well, you know, that word uncleanness is kind of open to interpretation. I mean, what does that really mean? So for example, if if my wife makes me angry, well, anger is probably a sin, and so my wife just caused me by her actions to get angry, which made me unclean, therefore she's unclean, therefore I have every right to divorce my wife because she made me angry. Here's another one they would use. If a, if a man saw another woman who he thought was more attractive than his wife, he could say, you know, compared to uh, that woman, my wife is unclean. So I can divorce my wife and and I'd be free from this marriage. And so it was very common at that time for men to divorce their wives for very trivial reasons and marry someone else. And it wasn't uncommon for a man to be married five, six, seven, eight times to different women. They would just marry, uh, divorce, remarry, etc., and so here comes Jesus into this culture that loves divorce, right? And he says, he gives this teaching on marriage and sexual ethics that is radical. Even his disciples, if you see it, they're like, dang, Jesus, like, this is a hard teaching to accept. Like, you have to be married to the same person for your whole life? Like, you can't just get divorced if you get uh, bummed out on the relationship? And Jesus is like, right. And they're like, well, maybe it's better to just not even get married. And Jesus is like, well, maybe you're right, you know? And and anyway, his teaching was radical on this subject, and even his disciples were shocked by how radical his teaching was. And I just want to point one thing out to you, kind of as a parenthetical idea here, and that's this. Notice that in all these verses, it talks about a man divorcing his wife. We never read about women divorcing their husbands. Now, why is that? There's a very good reason for that, culturally at that time. And here's why. In that society, if a woman was divorced it would just ruin her life, like socially, right? It would be, she would be totally destitute. And for that reason, a woman would almost never leave her husband. It was almost always men who would want a divorce because in that culture, a divorced man could easily get remarried with almost no problem. But a divorced woman would be totally marginalized. She'd be destitute. She couldn't just go out and get a job, right? And no one would want to marry you. And so you would be totally at the mercy